This is Our American Stories, and today, well, we're back to Faith. She's been going down to the villages in Central Florida. This is the largest retirement community in the country. Faith, a recent college graduate, we thought we should send her down there and get to know the folks. They have over 150,000 residents, 600 holes of golf, and more than 2,200 clubs. Faith visited one very special club in particular this time around, a club completely dedicated to, of all things, the Beatles. Take it away, Faith. And what brought you? Why the villages? Did you ever think that you would live in a retirement community like this? I had a a friend of mine that lived down here um, back in the 90s. I said, i got to check this place out. And I came here, and uh, the first day I bought a house. You didn't think there were too many old people? No. No. The cool thing about being here is when I go home, I'm the oldest one in my family, and I'm grandpa, the old guy. Here I'm the young rock and roll dude. That was 65-year-old Jim Frazier. He is in the younger age bracket in this retirement community. And Jim started a club called the Beatle Maniacs. This club includes Beatles trivia, news, music, and dancing. It is about as fun and crazy as it sounds. They even call themselves the most fun club in the villages. I was able to speak with Jim for a bit after one of their meetings to ask him, how his interests in the Beatles and music in general got started. I had kind of a normal childhood growing up, and uh, I had friends that played in a, in a marching band, and they played the snare drum. And um, I ended up getting into a marching band and learning how to play the snare drum and doing all that. And I, you know, that was when my sister marched and I played, and we wore these funny uniforms. And uh, then uh, February 9th, 1964, we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And I saw Ringo up there on a drum set with all these drums and these girls screaming and everything. And, it was, and I said, whoa, that's way cooler than what I do. <laughs> so I want to be him. We didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, so I really couldn't afford drums. But I did get kind of a piecemeal set stuck together, and I would play a little bit. And then a friend of mine got a nice drum set, and we would play and teach each other a lot of things. And I took a bunch of lessons and that sort of thing. And... Uh, Eventually, this guy was in a band, and uh, he didn't want to be in that band anymore. He suggested I play with them. So I played with them, and we were together for about 10 years. We were five kids. We were living in the housing project right outside of Boston. You know, we didn't have any money. Uh, and, uh, you know, the biggest thing to us was be, be famous and get rich, you know. And, uh, of course, we loved playing music. Did a lot of gigs. We recorded an album um, and just had a great time. You know, one of those bands that just... Almost made it, you know, just the least little turn here or there, the wrong wrong thing happened at the wrong time, and that sort of thing. And then we kind of split up and grew up and went on to be, become adults and raise families and have jobs and, and all that sort of thing. You know, we did have a bit of fame. We did, uh, we started getting rec- recognized locally and in the Boston area, even up in like New Hampshire and some of the surrounding states. People knew who we were. Um, we had a fan club. You know, they have to sign autographs once in a while and that sort of thing. So that was that was pretty cool, but we never made any money. You know, we had done a lot of things. We had done a television show with Duke Ellington, um, who said that he thought we were, we were one of the best young talents that he'd ever seen. Um, we were offered several record contracts that ended up falling through for one reason or another. And, you know, and then uh, one of the guys in the band got drafted. He went into the military. And uh, he and I were pretty close. We traveled a lot together. 
and we spent a lot of time in the back of cars and trucks and having a good time. We were all good friends and we were, we were like brothers. You know, to, to, to this day, if I talk to one of them, it's like we've never been away. It's like we just start talking again like, like it's the same as uh, it was 40 years ago. And while it's unfortunate that his band never made it, he didn't let that stop him from continuing to play music. It was back in the early 90s. I started just getting together with some friends to fool around and play guitar. and just, You know, they were into different things. And I'd always want to play all these Beatles songs. And uh, one of them finally says to me, says, you know, you need to start a Beatle tribute band here. So I said, okay, do you want to play bass? And he said, sure. So he played bass, and uh, he wasn't very good. <laughs> so, so I got another bass player. My brother plays drums, so he was a real good drummer. And uh, I went through a succession of bass players, lead guitar players, and, and we, you know, we had some Beatle tribute bands that we put together. Uh, in addition, there were other uh, Beatle bands in the area that you know, somebody couldn't make it one night and they needed somebody to play rhythm guitar and sing the John stuff, so I would fill in, do that kind of thing. And uh, I did that for about, oh, 15, 20 years. And then, of course, how did the Beatle Maniacs get started? I retired and I moved down here uh, to the villages and I started going to a lot of different music clubs. So rock and roll club, there's a country club, there's uh, bluegrass, all this different music. And, but there wasn't any like rock and roll or weren't many rock and roll clubs, especially there weren't Beatle clubs. So I thought, you know, maybe I could start a, a Beatles club, you know, just for Beatle fans and musicians. And uh, so I approached the rec department and filled out the paperwork and did all that kind of stuff I needed to do. And um, about a month, it was August of uh, 2012, I think, when we started. And um, we had about 100 people come to the first meeting. And uh, a lot of musicians came and we started doing different things. And we kind of got into a format that we have now. We have a little discussion about Beatles in the news, the Beatles history. Um, and then uh, usually watch a video and sometimes have a guest speaker as we did today. And um, then we play music. As you saw, we have about 30 musicians sometimes. Um, and we play Beatle music and people put up their hands and ask for a song and we try our best to, to muddle through it. And some of them come out pretty good and some of them are all right. But everybody enjoys the music and uh, everybody has a good time. It's really all about having fun. Jim wants everyone to feel like they can come and enjoy the music and even get a chance to perform and play themselves. Uh, I encourage anybody to come and play. If you're a beginner guitarist, bring an acoustic guitar, sit in the back, and you know, if you see a chord that you know, play it. If you don't know it, don't play it. There's, there's 12 other people that will be playing it, so don't worry about it. And if, you, if you're playing an acoustic guitar in the background and you hit a wrong chord, nobody's going to notice because there's 30 other people playing and... and you know, most of the people will have it right, so. So people, um, some of them seem really very good. We have a lot of professional musicians. We have, um, you know, I, I, myself, I play in some other bands around the villages. Uh, we put Beatle groups together to do shows for some of the other clubs or some of the other uh, facilities that want a Beatle show. Um, we have guys that play in multiple bands. I need and when we come back, more with Faith. And the Beatle Maniacs at the Villages. When I was younger, so much younger than today. There are places I remember all my life. Though some have changed, 
This is Our American Stories, and we left off with Faith talking to club leader Jim Frazier from the Villages. And again, we've sent Faith on, I think this is her fifth trip to Orlando or just north of Orlando, where the Villages are. Again, it's the largest retirement community in America, 150,000 residents. Let's continue that conversation with Faith and Jim Frazier. Um, we do have several professional musicians with us. But we also have people that just come and strum along for the fun of it. And they have just as much fun as we do. Um, a lot of these people have never appeared in front of people before, so it's a big deal for them. You know, for me, I, you know, I've played in front of 10,000 people, so, I, you know, it doesn't bother me. I get up and make a fool of myself in front of anybody. That's, what, you know, that's fine. Um, but a lot of these people are nervous, and they, you know, and, and so they get to see what it's like, you know, to, to be on that side of it. And it's, it's good. I, I like it for them. Uh, sometimes we have people get up and sing, um, the audience members. And a lot of times, maybe they're not such a great singer, but they like doing it. And so it's like, you know, I say, I encourage them to just come along and have, have a good time and sing. And, and, and now they see what it's like to stand in front of an audience and do this thing, get a response back. And, you know, and everybody applauds. Everybody loves them because everybody understands. They're not, they're not the professional musician. You know, they're not the, the people that are doing this all the time. So. And you feel like that's important to be able to get up and... I think it's real important to the club that to make uh, everybody feel as though they're welcome, that you don't have to be a, uh, a professional musician, you don't have to be a, a, an expert in Beatles history. And we do have both of those, you know, in the club. Um, but, you know, you don't, you don't, anybody can come. How does Jim get his music now? And what kind of music does he listen to? Besides, of course, the Beatles. You know what? I honestly don't listen to a lot of music. Um, we have a radio station here in the villages, uh, WVLG, and they play oldies, mostly 50s and 60s, some 70s. And eventually they'll be playing 80s and 90s music because I say that, you know, um, 40 years from now they'll have a Justin Bieber tribute on the squares. <laughs> Because that generation will now be here. So, um, but yeah, I listen to, to that radio station a lot. Because again, they play music from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is. But it's like anything else, you know. Whatever music was around from the time that you were about 12 to 20, is the music that it's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. And that's the music you're going to love. And whatever you were growing up with, unless you had a father like me who just played Beatle albums for you constantly. Um, but, like I say, but that music will stick with those generations, but for some reason, those generations keep discovering the Beatles. I mean, uh, Justin Bieber was during like 12 to 12. Sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But there were other people around at that time as well. So, you know, and you'll see when you're my age, you'll look back fondly on him, you know, and, and, and because it will bring back... You know, the things that were going on in your life then. You know, high school and you know, dating and all that stuff that was going. You know, that was the, the soundtrack to your life. And I think usually in you know, junior high school through high school to college, it's the best time of our lives. That's the time that we're learning and growing and having so much fun. Then all of a sudden it's work and family, you know, which is still great. But 
you know, you still, you always tend to want to go back to the teenagers. Do you feel like when you listen to it, it's like, oh, I remember exactly when I first there's, heard this there's song. There's certain songs, yeah, there's certain songs that, that a, a vision of where I was or what I was doing pop into my mind every single time I hear the song. You know, it's, it's amazing. I love how he describes the music you listen to from ages 12 to 20 as the soundtrack to your life. But, according to Jim, the Beatles seem to be the music that every generation comes back to. Well, I think once you get past 70, they were more like uh, fans of 50s music. You know, they were the Elvis, Buddy Holly, all those people generation. They were actually the people that were the same age as the Beatles. The Beatles were 10 years older than me. So, you know, those people, the Beatles came along, they kind of, eh, who, who, who were these guys with their long hair, you know, and these crazy songs. Although we get some. Um, we, we had a woman that passed away who was 92, used to come every week. One of the things that's interesting is um, when I would play in Beatle tribute bands, we would have people in the audience in the 70s and the 80s, and we would have kids that were 12 and 13 and 14 years old singing along, knowing the lyrics to all the songs. And, and you come off the stage and they'd say, do you play Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? That's my favorite song. You know, 14-year-old kid. And I'd say, yeah, we'll do that for, you know. And uh, it just, every generation discovers the Beatles. You know, and I think that all the musicians today, all the famous people and not famous people, really owe them for really sort of starting the whole ball rolling. And I know, you know, Elvis and all the people before them got them going, but... You know, when they hit in 64, everything just changed. Music just exploded. I mean, it was just, everybody wanted to be in a band. Everybody wanted to be in a band. Bands forming all over the place. And uh, it was just much more important, I think, to, to a lot of kids in my generation than it was in previous generations. Not that, you know, the, the kids that grew up in the 50s had their music. But um, it just... You know, it just didn't seem the same. And then, of course, you know, once the Beatles came along, they started doing these bigger concerts. They did Shea Stadium, 56,000 people. You know, 73 million people watching on television. You know, that never happened. Now, all of a sudden, these were events. They were huge, huge events. Um, you know, Elvis played theaters, 2,000 people. Like I say, and then there were just so many bands. And then... You know, every week on the Ed Sullivan show, there was, you know, the, the, the Dave Clark Five, the Rolling Stones, Peter and Gordon, the, you know, every up, 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 the doors, the, you know, everybody, every week there was a new band. And then there were five or six different television shows that were having these bands on. Uh, and then the whole California bands, Mamas and the Papas and the Birds and, you know, Buffalo Springfield, all those different bands. It seemed like every week there was something new to listen to. And of course... How has music changed? Oh, every, everything's changed. And, you know, first of all, you know, the Beatles themselves caused a lot of change in the way music was recorded, publishing, um, financially, um, just so many different things that they changed, even from that standpoint. Back then, I think most bands were like, like my band. You know, four or five kids from the community that got together and eventually made it big. Today, it seems like these things are sort of pasted together, you know, and the music, to me, it's not as organic as it used to be. It's, it's almost too good. It's too sharp, too, too polished, you know, and I, I don't, that's my taste. I mean, you know, I don't like that. 
Um, but you know, I imagine you and I are not going to have the same taste in music. So, um, but there are there is stuff around today that I like. You know, like Bruno Mars and some other people that are around. But it used to be, you know, when you went into a studio to do a record, all the musicians would be there. And you would lay down uh, a backing track, like uh, bass, drums, maybe rhythm, guitar, maybe piano or something that would just do in the backing track. And then you would overdub the vocals and the lead guitar parts and maybe some extra drum thing or whatever. Today, a lot of the records that are produced, the musicians are never even in the same room. They may not even be in the same state. Uh, somebody will do a track and they'll email it from New York to California, and then some drummer in California will add drums to it, and email it to a guy in Texas who adds a keyboard part to it, and then they bring it back to the lead singer in, in New York or Philadelphia or someplace, and then she, you know, does the vocals over the whole thing. So it, it's it's almost like mechanical. It's, it's almost like machines are making the music now, as opposed to people getting together and sort of bouncing off one another. And, I don't, I don't feel that anymore. But, and again, not everybody and not everything, but that's, that to me, I think, is what I see that we've lost in music. Chemistry between the musicians. And for those of you who aren't Beatles fans, Jim has a few words for you. Every once in a while I'll run into someone that says, well, I don't like the Beatles. And I want to say, well, which Beatles don't you like? Do you, do you not like Yesterday and Michelle? Or do you not like uh, I Am the Walrus? Or do you not like I Saw a Standing? Which, you know, there's so many different styles and varieties of music that they play that it's hard for someone not to, just to say, I don't like the Beatles. Because they weren't like pigeonholed. They weren't one style. There's not one Beatles song. They ran the gamut. Thanks for letting me come and visit your club, Beatle Maniacs. I surely will need to go back there again. It really was the most fun club in the villages. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And great job as always, Faith. And boy, what passion that you heard in Jim Frazier's voice. And by the way, just to confirm, Jim, on the Beatles, only Cirque du Soleil, only two artists Cirque du Soleil ever did a show around, the Beatles and Michael Jackson. Case closed. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since it seems like last year in praise of the one-second pause which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we, we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause. Now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter 
in literature. And I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class, but the Cesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And, well, what it means, well, here's the actual definition from the Poetry Archive. A cesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A cesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Mole's Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other. The fifth sentence is only half a line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic cesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he'd just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see... The same thing, called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him in God. Cesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Cesura. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio, San Francisco radio show. And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause. He began his piece asking these questions. How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. Well, we had our American Stories, Greg Hengler, ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath 
Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I I really'd like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me, and do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it, but you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignored. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? (laughs) But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback. We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion? It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually. Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine-minute rule. i got to really work on this. Man. Here's Marty on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping-pong game. You want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60 percent in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90 percent of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20 percent of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60 percent of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, and not pausing. Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty, but for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it, so is Marty's answer. I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question, you know, how was your day? What did you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later, I'm like, oh man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. And I just must come off as just selfish. Yeah, well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes <laughs> not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. That stung. Greg asked for some clarity. 
So I fall into the narcissist's carrier. Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continuing to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's, you're, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use in praise of the one-second pause. And don't forget, 30 seconds, green light, 45 seconds, yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk, you got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. to mushroom. Do you know what I mean? Gets bigger and bigger. It involves all kinds of people. It's a very good lesson. Do you listen at all? What kind of responsible behavior is that? Anything else? Have I been respectful to you? Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're irritating me. <laughs> this is Leah Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and I love it when Jesse just hits the Judge Judy soundboard for yeah. a while. What? And we love doing Judge Judy cases. That's what. And, well, what's the case today that we're going to be looking at, Greg? What did you dig up? I dug up the case of the irresponsible drug dealer. And uh, the reason I picked this case is because, uh, yeah, he's an irresponsible drug dealer. But there is some context to be found out here. And uh, I think it's going to have a little bit of a twist. Good. 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 Well, let's take a listen. What's the case about? Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, Edward, just got busted. You bailed him out. Yes, ma'am. An admitted drug user helps a dealer go free. Mr. Milan says it was to your benefit to get him out of jail. But did she set up this deal? The arrangement was Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this. Out of fear of getting cut off? She thought I was still going to be able to supply her. Judge Judy. Amy Shelley is suing her former friend, Edward Milan, for a loan to bail him out of jail. Edward says he never asked for Amy's help. All rise. All right, Hangler, set us up. Um, so Edward, he's the man that bailed. He got bailed out of jail. He's a former drug dealer. And uh, just we're going to find out now about Melissa. Uh, she, about, she's uh, the friend. Or no, she's actually the girlfriend of Edward, the drug dealer. Probably been sworn in, Judge. You may be seated. Is your name Folks, Melissa? Stand over there. I assume that since you're standing with the defendant, you are a witness for the defendant. Is that right? Yes. How long have you been his girlfriend? Almost three years. You have children together? Correct. How many? One daughter. How old? 19 months. How many times has he been arrested since you've known him? Twice. For what? Um, possession. And... Possession of drugs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And? Uh, running from the cops. I guess that's it. What were you arrested for twice, sir, since you've been involved with the lovely Melissa? Uh, I've got arrested for possession, battery, and uh, 
Battery of whom? Battery of my girlfriend and... Uh, Which girlfriend? Melissa. I just actually pushed her, but that's battery. If you push somebody, that's battery. That and uh, along with... Let me see. That, that's it. Those two things. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. What happens next, Angler? Yeah, Edward, the drug dealer, was bailed out by his girlfriend. We just heard from her, Melissa. Her friend, Amy Shelley. Now, Miss Shelley, she's the one of Edward's customers. And we'll find out it's her meth customer. Well, let's hear how these friends ended up in Judge Judy's courtroom. Now, the plaintiff, Miss Shelley, was a friend of the lovely Melissa, and you got yourself arrested. So Melissa called Miss Shelley and said, what's your first name? Edward. Edward just got busted for the first time since you've known her or the second time since you've known her? First time. So that must have been for drugs. That was for a, a number of things. Being intoxicated, the drugs, and the uh, battery. And could you please help me and get him out of jail? That was the call. Is that right? Yes. How long had you and Miss Shelley been friends? Over 20 years. Have you used drugs with her? I'm asking you a question. Don't think about the answer. Just give me the answer. Yes. Frequently? Not in a while. Not in how long? A long time. So as far as you knew, she was not using drugs? At the time? Yes. Yes. Oh, she was? No. Pardon me. My apologies, Your Honor. At the time you called her to bail out Edward, did you think Miss Shelley was using drugs? Yes. And you? No, I was pregnant. What kind of drugs was Miss Shelley using? Meth. And where was she getting it from? Edward. So this is what the case is all about. You bailed him out. It's $2,500. $1,000 he gave you back. Correct. But you signed for the bail. Correct. According to you, he was supposed to pay for the bail, make periodic payments to the bail bondsman. Yes, ma'am. He did not. No, ma'am. You are stuck with it. So her meth dealer boyfriend <laughs> ditched her bail money. This is a good one, Gangler. What happens next? All right, now we're going to, Judge Judy's going to zoom in on Edward's employment and his recent criminal history. What do you do for a living, Edward? I just recently started working for Local 510. It's an event services like event management for car shows setting up for car shows what did you do before that uh before that i actually wasn't working and before that i was doing uh you know construction how long were you a drug dealer uh on and off for a couple years starting when and finishing when finishing the day i went to jail i went and spent like two and a half months there then you mean on this arrest yeah on this arrest when were you arrested for battery of melissa that day of melissa that day it all happened all at once since April 24, 2006, you have had no arrest. Is no that arrest. what you're telling me? Yeah, no arrest. Except for the day and a half after I was bailed out, which I was bailed out on the 26th of April, same, the same day that I was arrested. I uh, went right back to jail a day and a half later because of violation of probation. What probation? The probation that I was on originally, which was felony evasion, which is running from the police in my car. That's what put me on probation. Why were you running from the police? Oh, I, had, I was on Edward, why I was on running? drugs myself. So you were on probation for driving while under the influence of drugs? No, no, I, they didn't give me an under the influence charge, but, you know, I was a user. So basically, um, I got the felony evasion, and that gave me the felony probation, which uh, I, I, I violated when I, when I got this case. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. What, <laughs> does Judge Judy keep it together here? I Usually, I'd well, like you up for breakfast. No, actually... <laughs> Uh, what you're going to catch on, what, what we're noticing here is is something that's going to unpack itself a little bit in, in a little bit, and that this guy is transparent. You can tell there's been a transformation in his heart and his life, 
Because he's a straight shooter. You notice Judge Duty's called up the other two and said, I want straight answers right away because they're hesitating. This guy is telling her more than what she's asking. So you know something's going on here. Well, let's find out. How long had you been selling uh, Miss Shelley drugs? Probably about a year. Just meth? Yeah, that's it. Where were you getting it from? Where was I getting it from? From other sources. How many customers did you have? Not many. You know, just basically trying to get by. How many? Probably about five. And you made a living doing this? Uh... Semi, a semi-living, not much. Okay. Your daughter's 19 months old. Yes. But since then, I've cleaned up. You know, I've been through a program. I've been clean for like two years since this incident happened. Fine. Now, you've been clean for two years, Edward. What program have you been through? Uh, It's called the Henry Olaf Program. It's in San Francisco, California. Part of that program is accepting responsibility for your own actions? Correct. That it's not anybody else's fault if bad things happen to you. It's your fault. You're My supposed fault. to take care of it. You were arrested for felony possession on the 24th of April, 2006. Correct. Whose fault is that? Mine. Whose responsibility is it to clean up after you? Uh, my, my responsibility to clean up after myself. How much was your bail? 25000 10% of that, $2,500. So $2, yeah. How much did you pay? What I paid was nothing. My girlfriend used my money to pay for the bail. She gave the money to Amy. How much? I think it was 1000 and then she also uh, paid a couple of payments because Amy was harassing her and texting her stuff. <laughs> so, so far, Melissa used your money yeah. to pay her the $1,000 up front. Correct. And then Melissa used her money to make a couple of payments. Correct. On the other 1500 Correct. So, so far, I hear you not taking responsibility, Edward. Well, actually... I hear... Melissa taking responsibility for your few payments. I was in jail. But I don't hear you taking responsibility. I was in jail. Did you give the money back to her? Did I give the money back to Melissa? Yes. Actually, no, I didn't pay Melissa back. Why? That's your program. Well, yeah. Well, what happened was, the arrangement was, and I remember this clearly, Amy said, you don't worry, you guys, I'll help you out. I'll help you pay this, okay? Helping me pay this for the simple fact that she probably thought, my thinking is, she thought I was still going to be able to supply her. But when I was trying to clean myself up, I didn't, okay, want, I didn't want anything to do with that, you know? I, I want that part of my life to be over, so. Okay. Well, you know, he does sound pretty straight. Yeah. So what happens next? I don't know. Let's listen to her wrap it up. You've been honest with me so far, yeah. Edward. So I see no reason to think that you weren't honest about this. I'm not even going to ask Miss Shelley about your drug use, Miss Shelley. Absolutely. Absolutely what? By all means, ask. Did you ever use meth? I have indeed, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Did you ever get it from Edward? I did on two occasions, Your Honor. Uh, just all? And you did? Yes. Perfect. I love everybody when they're honest. It makes my life so much easier. Edward, I want to explain something to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you ensure that what you learned in the program in San Francisco is emblazoned in your memory. Oh, it is. Not yet. Who was selling drugs? Myself. Who was making money from the sale of drugs? Myself. Who knew that it was against the law? Me. Who took the risk of selling the drugs? I did. Who got arrested? I did. Who got bailed out? I did. Whose responsibility is it? It's my responsibility. Then you pay the tab, Edward. That's what it means to accept the responsibility. Do you understand? I understand. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,100. That's all. Thank Thank you, Your Honor. I was excused. You may step out. Wow, this is why people love Judge Judy. Mm -hmm. Yes! (laughs) Yes, and she doesn't rip this guy, though. I mean, this is a very unique Judge Judy. She could see. She could see that there was some change. Yep, but not all the way. Not all. Yeah, not all the way. I mean, he's still hanging on, but uh, 
it's also refreshing to see that uh, somebody with so much trouble can also turn around. This is Our American Stories. Judge Judy, thanks, Hengler. And uh, find some more for us. We love the show. It's the biggest show on television. She's got the biggest contract in the history of television. And I know sometimes you're busy, you're at work, you can't catch it. Sometimes we can't either. And that's why Hengler's here. And he brings us our favorite and some of the best and more interesting Judge Judy's here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we love music here on this show. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and catch a couple of our categories. The story of a song, and my goodness, there are a whole bunch of good ones. And then we have so many half hours and hours on music legends. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and go up to topics and pull down what you like. And right now we're going to get to one of our favorite, favorite segments of the day, and that's our This Day in Music History. Take it away. Have they come across the movie screen? This day in music history, 1972, Bruce Springsteen auditioned for CBS Records A&R man John Hammond in New York. Springsteen played a short set for him in his office. Hammond was so impressed that he arranged a real audition that night at the Gaslight Club in New York for other Columbia executives. Bruce passed the audition. Arabian Nights was a song originally recorded by John Hammond as part of Bruce's audition as a song publishing demo for Intersong Music to be sold to other artists. Take a listen. Mama comes in, she screams, You've been out with that tramp again last night. That silver sequin I went black, bitch. No one mama don't lie But mama, she sings me moon-tied melodies With this great top 40 hook But mama just stares and papa don't care But he says, look mama, the girl's all right The girl's all right In 1987, the band Cutting Crew started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. The song remains the band's biggest hit, peaking at number one in the United States, Canada, and Finland, and reaching the top five in the U.K., South Africa, Sweden, and Switzerland. Famous billionaire Richard Branson started Virgin Records in England in 1972, but it wasn't until 1987 and the release of Cutting Crew's broadcast album the album that this song is on, that the Virgin brand broke through in America. In 1989, a security guard alerted the police after a suspicious man wearing a wig, fake mustache, and false teeth walked into a Zales Jewelers in California. Three squad cars arrived, and police detained the man, who turned out to be Michael Jackson in disguise. 
1991, this day in music history, Nirvana booked into the Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California for 16 days. On a budget of $65,000, the band started recording what would become the Nevermind album. The album sold 11 million copies in America and astounding 30 million worldwide by March of 1999. Despite that, Smells Like Teen Spirit was its only single to crack the top 10 of the Hot 100 singles chart. Despite eventually being named the best album of the 90s and landing a number 17 on its 500 greatest albums of all time tally, Rolling Stone magazine initially only gave the disc four stars out of five. Certainly not a shabby grade, but it's a far cry from the post-revolutionary praise that the album gets today. In 2004, Total Guitar Magazine's readers voted Guns N' Roses' anthem Sweet Child of Mine as the greatest guitar riff ever, ahead of Nirvana's grunge anthem Smells Like Teen Spirit. Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love came in third, followed by Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water. Here's the one and only Slash talking about writing that guitar riff. Sweet Child of Mine came up when uh, Guns N' Roses was sitting in a house. The house was basically totaled. I don't know how long we'd been living there, but it was basically a shell, you know. And one afternoon, playing my guitar, and Izzy had his guitar, and it was in the middle of the afternoon. And where the riff came from, I don't really remember, but I started playing this pattern. And I mean, it was one of those things that I was in the process of discovering as I came up with each note and sort of turned it into something that kept rotating, you know. And then it's, along the way, Izzy started playing the chords that went along with it behind it. And I guess Axel had overheard us playing it, he was upstairs. And uh, unbeknownst to us, he'd started writing lyrics. And this day in music history in 2007, almost 2,000 musicians gathered in the Polish city of Wroclaw to play a rock anthem by Jimi Hendrix. The guitarists were aiming to set a new Guinness World Record by gathering 1,876 guitarists in the city's market square to play Hey Joe. Organizers say it was the biggest guitar ensemble recorded in history. Released in December of 1966, Hendrix's version of Hey Joe became a hit in the United Kingdom, entering the top 100 UK singles chart in January of 67 and peaking at number 6. The single was released in the United States in May of 1967, but failed to make the charts. Hey Joe was also the last song Hendrix performed at the Woodstock Festival in 1969, and as such, it was also the final song of the entire festival. The song was performed after the crowd cheered for an encore. And that's a look at this day in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. You know I caught a mess around with another man. Yeah. I'm going down the shoe mount it. You know I caught a mess around with another man. <laughs> that ain't too cool.
is Our American Stories. And it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. And of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor and thus the music? And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And of course, because of her move, move the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it, I don't know, like you, you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we t- when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yeah. did everything. And he's, that, that odor sounded... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, my eyes smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, 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 so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. <laughs> anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing. That this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. So, and, and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than two hundred and fifty thousand sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't even want to know how many, <laughs> um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, I, in, ugh, it's gross. Uh, it's gross. And and so <laughs> so so, what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you? What do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the so the first thing. So she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help, dim, you know, diminish it. Like, it's, you know, I'll grow it, hopefully. But she, so she said, basically, you want him to, um, to get synthetic material that is 
sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as, so, he, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called um, Smart Wool. So it's actually, it's, it's I think a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so I know, it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's gonna it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this the stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus. You can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot, something like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that, then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, the, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Or I, mean, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like the breeze can work, and I thought that this is going to mask the odor. Um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. She puts on the rubber. I can't believe a flip flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Like, that would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also, What's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cool. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. 
Um, I've invested a lot in socks, though. I can tell you that. I just threw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm, hoping, I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did grow out of it. But, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just oh. cre- it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last, a few weeks ago. I get into a cab and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back Aww. in the rain. And so what do you do about like body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, right. really bad body odor? It's just brutal, Heidi. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor. And as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And <laughs> this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, but particularly just about American life. And one of the cornerstones of American life is work, and it's also entrepreneurship and free enterprise and just living your dream by starting a business. And the intersection of these two things, because when a person starts a business, ultimately to grow it, they've got to hire workers. And so we wanted to talk to a few people about this, and we're talking to ordinary Americans all across this country, ordinary workers, and just as important, perhaps more important, and not that the workers aren't important, but if we don't have people creating jobs, there's no place for people to work. 
And so we want to talk to those people who have the daring and courage to start new businesses and run them and talk to them about what's going on in their lives, too. And joining us for this series is Jane Johnson and Zach Model. And welcome, both of you, to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, Jane, let's start, let's start with the worker first, and let's learn a little bit about you, Jane, uh, because when I hear the name Jane, I don't think machinist, uh, yeah. generally. Talk to me about your life and what led you to become this thing called a machinist. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, born on the west side of Chicago. Uh, I lived and was raised by my grandmother. Um, unfortunately, my mom, she had schizophrenia, so she wasn't able to care for me as well. So I lived with her until I was uh, 13. And um once I became 13, my grandmother, she became ill with liver cancer, and uh, after she passed away, uh, I moved to my great-aunt's, which is my grandmother's sister's house, also on the west side of Chicago. And from there, um, I've grown. I've graduated from high school. I went to college for a couple of years, came back because my aunt was a little sick and she needed help. And um, from there, I, I was at home and I realized, hey, I have to contribute, I have to do something, I have to contribute contribute to society somehow. <laughs> so um, I had a counselor, and she uh, gave me a little bit of information about uh, TMA, which is a uh, program that teamed up with this church called Bethel New Life. Um, uh, technology manufacturing aligned with TMA, and uh, I attended classes there. I got really excited because I always had a love for just anything I can get my hands on, being technical, uh, anything that I can basically rip apart and find out how it works. <laughs> so that was that program was perfect for me. I went to school for a couple of weeks and graduated. And, uh, yeah, after graduation, I, was re- I mean, Zach reached out to me. And from there, uh, <laughs> that's all I had. Been. The rest is history. <laughs> yep. And Jane, it's interesting because when you start talking about taking stuff apart and putting it back together, I got a little girl who loves the same thing, and I can try and put a little bow on her head and put a dress. She ain't having any of it. She wants to learn how to take apart a gun. She wants to learn how to take apart anything that moves. And I just don't want to get in the way. Now, here's what's interesting. You're you're now working in a place, doing something you love. You don't have a college degree. This is, by the way, something we talk over and over with people about. Uh, College just isn't right for everybody. We're not here to slam colleges. We have a great sponsor that's a college. But for you, it just didn't make sense. Talk a little bit about that and how this training changed your life. Definitely, the training has changed my life in so many ways. Um, number one, I have gotten a leg up in society thanks to this training. So uh, without having a degree, uh, some people might feel that they won't be able to contribute to society or do anything for themselves, and they'll just be falling by the wayside. But no, uh, training, it actually gave me a little bit of knowledge and uh, a little bit more something to work with than the average Joe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, manufacturing, the whole industry has just brightened my eyes and made me believe that there is still a way for me as a regular, a little bit more than a regular Joe, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say. And, you know, you right now, you're, you're a single young woman living in, a, in what, what we can charitably call a pretty tough neighborhood, the west side mm-hmm. of Chicago. Tell us about what it's like there and do you sometimes wonder or wish you could talk to some of your friends there and share with them your experience? Do you? And are they inclined to maybe follow you? Have you led any people to, to follow you in your steps? 
Jane? Well, I have told a couple of people about the program, and uh, yeah, on the west side of Chicago, there is crime everywhere you go. There's constant uh, drug dealing, there's gang banging, there's all of that, and I kind of uh, stayed stayed by the wayside with that. I, I, I didn't want any business with that because if I would, anything that I would do would bring any harm to my family, that would just completely crush me because... Obviously, family is all I have, and I would want to do as much as I can to protect it and contribute to it. So I stayed out of the streets. I didn't do anything that would my aunt would call stupid. And, um, yeah, I just, I've let a couple of people know in my neighborhood about it, but unfortunately the way that they think, they don't think that they don't have enough confidence in themselves or they might turn their nose a certain way at what I do. But, hey. At least I let them know. Yep, you let them know, and life's filled with choices in the end. And, you know, the tragedy of so many of these neighborhoods is simply an utter lack of family guidance. And actually, uh, when and where it can, the church just isn't in enough of these folks' lives, too. And let's face it, this, this, this uh, faith-based nonprofit really had a lot to do with this life change. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And Jane, you, 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 and by the way, we're going to be getting to Zach Model in just a minute, but we always love to talk where, where we think stories should start. And in my mind, where this started was, my goodness, the work of Zach, the entrepreneur, allowed Jane to have a job. And so we want to start with Jane because, my goodness, um, this job doesn't exist, and, and Jane may not have a way out of the unsafe and violent neighborhood that she currently lives in. And Jane, where, where are you dreaming of moving to? Well, initially it's Oak Park. Uh, that's, that's the dream. It seems very cultured, safe, and as well as uh, just a pretty darn trending, trendy neighborhood, I would say. Well, good. And yeah, you want what all people want in the end, and that's to have a, a, a safe and decent place to raise mm-hmm. your family. And, and, and tell me, if you would, about uh, your boss. Um, he reached out to you. Um, what has he meant in your life, and what has this job meant to your life, Jane? Well, initially, uh, Zach, he actually came to me the day of my graduation and offered me a job. So from that day, it was actually pretty – he's been a – how do I say this? He's been a shocker of mine. He's been a great shock to me because I would have never imagined someone – of his stature would come up to me and initially offer me a job without me even knowing him or him knowing me as well. So he's been constantly dropping all of these <laughs> blessings my way. And it was, I mean, he's, he's a great guy, very friendly, smile that can light up a room. He's, he's, he's amazing. And, and, you know, he did something that we don't do often enough, and that's place our belief in people. We're doing a, a, a story about Brett Favre's retirement speech and in that retirement speech, Jane, what was interesting is this guy from Little Kiln, Mississippi, a poor rural town in a place where nobody goes anywhere. And constantly, Brett Favre told the story of how total strangers and people he barely knew believed in him more than he believed in himself and that he couldn't have gotten, he couldn't have gotten where he got. And uh, that's got to mean a lot to you to have a total stranger come up to you on your graduation day and say, you know what? I like you, kid. Come work for me. Yep, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, well, good for you, Jane. Look, when we come back, it's going to be time to talk to Zach. And we're going to be talking to Zach Model and his business. 
And that's Atlas Tool and Die Works. And that's in Chicago, Illinois. And he employs Jane, and he employs some other folks there, too. We're going to learn all about Zach's life and what he's up against in Chicago as an entrepreneur trying to build, grow, and in the end, expand his business like all good entrepreneurs. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, work, free enterprise, and even a little bit of faith in this segment, the intersection of all three, the collision, and what and how business impacts work, and how work impacts a life, a human life, and we just talked to Jane Johnson, and what a great story, and we heard a lot about Zach already, Zach Model, from Jane, and my goodness, what a testimonial, Zach, before you even come on, everybody listening to this already loves you, and that's not easy. Uh, Zach Model, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here, Lee. I've got a lot to live up to, and hopefully I'll do it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no no pressure. You know, Zach, you're the fourth-generation owner of Atlas Tool and Die Works. Tell us about your family, how this all started, and tell us about your business now. Yeah, so I'm the fourth-generation family business here at Atlas Tool. Uh, my great-grandfather started it in 1918 in downtown Chicago, and, uh, you know, initially we built uh, dyes and fixtures for uh, uh, the burgeoning industry as the Industrial Revolution was kind of happening in the early 1900s. And we made it through uh, two world wars and a couple other wars. And over the years, we kept, uh, I think the key to our success at our business was we kept pivoting and transitioning to where the opportunity was. And again, in the beginning, we were just tools and dyes and fixtures. And in the 50s, we added stamping in response to customer demand. And then uh, in the 70s, EDM technology. And, and Every decade, we, we layered on another set of technology. We put some more tools on our belt, so to speak. And what we really sell is manufacturing services. So uh, whatever custom parts and pieces our customers need, that's what we need to have the services and the technology to supply. So, uh, you know, we've been fortunate for almost 100 years to keep pivoting here and fortunate to get to get, work together as a family. I work with my father. My two sisters are in the business and uh, very blessed to have that opportunity. And I'm blessed to have such wonderful employees like Jane and my other team members. Um, you know, the average tenure at my company while we're growing and expanding, still the average tenure is over 20 years. Most oh, my goodness. People that come here, they stay here and they work here. They have a career for a lifetime. And, and I so value those people because that's really what's made us successful over the years. Of course. And, you know, that you keep those people as testimony management because good management retains people. And to retain people in an ever-changing environment is no duck walk, Zach. How do you do that? Because change is tough. And sometimes people just want to resist change, but it sounds like your team understands that you either change together or you die together. 
Well, that, that, that is tough, and we've had a few close calls over the years. You know, uh, my father and I recently bought out his cousins uh, two years ago, and I think those were two people, nice people, but they had a different opportunity, a different belief in, in change, and uh, change is hard. So if you're not willing to embrace it and to modernize it and, and to keep going where the opportunity is, you will miss the boat here. And, and I think, you know, in terms of keeping people, you know, we treat people fairly, treat people well, treat them like we would like to be treated. And, and, I, and I like to say, you know, my team and, and Jane, maybe you can attest to this, you know, I work as hard as I expect my team to work. You know, I, I'm not the owner that goes out golfing all day and tells my people to go and take care of their work. No, I'm here working with them. And on Saturday, I'm here too. And I'm here late. And I come in early. So I, I try to set the example for my team, and I expect the same from them. I expect the best from them, and I expect to give the best because cause we want to win together. It, it's a team. It really is a team effort. So, you know, everybody from the people sweeping the floor to the people taking the orders and managing the customer, we are all important. Nothing functions without each one of those jobs getting done so so you know i believe in that and we've tried to reward people as we could when when we're making money when we're profitable when we're doing well we've certainly shared the rewards with the team over the years and i think that's why people come and stay but but now you know it is time to uh, our business is changing again and it is time to attract that next generation of workers and, and jane is a great example of hopefully what will be the next generation of the workforce will be here for another 20 30 40 years well, that's fantastic and you know a book that uh, we had uh interviewed the author of a book called Team of Teams. We interviewed Stanley McChrystal, and we took a couple of calls. And what was interesting is the, a couple of guys who trained under him said, you know, you were the best boss a guy could ever have. You were up with us, you trained with us, and you went to sleep, and we went to sleep. And I think that is always a sign of leadership, that you don't do anything. You, do, you would not do anything you didn't ask your own people to do. <clears throat> and that's, that's just a sign of great leadership. Zach, you're, you're in Chicago uh, well, how many employees do you have in your in your company? So uh, we've been growing, but uh, as of the last count that I heard at Atlas, we're uh, approaching uh, 74 or 75 employees. We have, uh, I think, about five temps right now, so in total about 80 here. We have two other related businesses where we employ some more people. So in total, we're, we're getting close to 90 employees between all the businesses here in Chicago. And that's a lot of lives to be responsible for, Zach. And I always like to put people in the... In, in the shoes of other people, because empathy is really important. And obviously, you care about your workers. But in the end, you have to, in the end, pay for You're, you're responsible for the payroll. You're responsible for the health care. Um, this, this is, I don't want to call it a burden, but it's a heck of a responsibility, isn't it, Zach? It is, and this is something you know. My dad has always made me keenly aware of since I was a, a little kid about that that responsibility of, of of owning a business and employing people. And he says it's not just our family that we're worried about; it's the other ninety families, and it's not just the ninety people who work for us. It is their three, four, five people in their families. He says we are responsible for several hundred people here with these jobs, not just ourselves. My dad has always made that clear to me, and how important that is to, to empathize and understand and take care of these people and they will take care of us and, and and so yeah it is a burden in chicago it's really not easy you know uh we we have uh in illinois one of the highest workers compensation costs in the nation and, it, and it's unfortunate because in illinois it seems like the workers compensation system it's certainly uh the two people the two parties that was set up to protect the the employer and the employee i think are both losers in the system in illinois i think there are other parties some of them being doctors some of them being lawyers and maybe perhaps a little bit the insurance companies who benefit far 
more than the two other than the two primary parties of the system was set up to protect, and we bear a very high cost because of that in Illinois, an unusually high cost. In Chicago and in, I'm in Cook County, uh, we enjoy some of the highest property taxes uh, on business uh, in the nation. You know, uh, our property tax bill is approaching, and you know, we've expanded. And we bought out the building next door uh, two years ago as part of this expansion plan that we're under, and our, our property tax bill is approaching two hundred thousand dollars a year for these for our buildings, which. I'm I'm a I'm fine to pay taxes and pay a fair share, but it, it just seems that the burden here is growing um, uh, disproportionately to other areas. For example, if I was in Indiana, my workers' compensation would be about a third, and my property taxes could be mm, significantly less, maybe half or if not more, uh, lower lower from where I'm at. So, you know, it is hard to stay here, but we have a lot of people that walk to work. Uh, we have people in the community that, that that get here. It's convenient for them. So moving isn't just a about me and the bottom line, you know, it's about the other people that are here that that come to work here and how it would affect them. So, uh, you know, as long as I can afford to and as long as business will support it, we want to stay here. But but that is every year I kind of look at it and scratch my head and say, you know, it's it's six figures. It, it, it's it's a couple more jobs. It's another machine, you know. Um, so hopefully we can keep working in Illinois and get educate these policymakers to make some better choices. You bet. And by the way, you said something really important there, Zach. You said six figures. That's another job and another machine. And you talk like every guy I know who runs a small business. You didn't say six figures. I'm putting that in my pocket and I'm up in my golf membership. That's not what you said to me. You said more workers, better machines. You want to grow your business. I don't know a guy who starts a business or a gal who that's not what they want to do. And it, it, it sounds like the state of Chicago and Cook County in particular uh, is tough. I want to read you something. The Technology and Manufacturing Association president, Steve Rauschenberger, told one of our staff. He said, Mayor Daly set up a higher tax rate on commercial and industrial businesses in Cook County because he thought it would be more difficult for them to move than the residents. I, I, that is about as cynical a thing as I could imagine a, a political figure doing. Do you think that's true, or do you think this is just just the cost of doing business in a in a city that has a lot of corruption in it? Well, uh, so, so Mayor Daley, if we like him or, or not, he was smart. And I think his statement has some truth to it that it is very hard for businesses to leave. Look at what I said. But do I think it's right? Absolutely not. I, I hate the way businesses and business owners get demonized by government and media and policymakers sometimes saying that, you know, we're, we're the fat cats, that $100,000, another 100000 in my pocket. I'm the last guy in line to get money here. You know, my, my first goal as, we, as, as we're profitable is to give more to my employees, I'll get it in the end. I know it'll come for me if everybody else is successful. But I'd rather, like you said, reinvest in another machine, reinvest in another job, and build it bigger. That's just how I am. But you know, we we have this tendency in our in, our, in public debate right now to. to villainize uh, business owners as fat cats and, and that we're just lining our pockets, but we forget the food chain here. If we don't have people like me willing to take the risk and put the money in and, 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 and uh, create the jobs, we, we don't have an economy, and, and we can't villainize people. And, and, you know, when it is time to take the money out and, and the owner is time to make a profit, they should, because they put the risk in and they worked the hours and, and, and they made the effort to create the jobs. So typically the owner isn't first in line, but when it is their time, I, I'm in favor 
of, of owners making some money, and I'm in favor of these good jobs and stuff. So I wish that policymakers would kind of respect that food chain a little bit more. I'm a believer that if you let business succeed, you will get your tax revenue in the end, but you, you, sometimes you have to give a little first in order to get at the end. You bet. And Zach, who, Zach who, do they, who do they have left to tax if you move to Indiana? And then, well, that's the, good the luck. The burden is getting bigger and bigger on a smaller pool. Yep, no doubt about it. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. And Jane, my goodness, what a great story. And we want to stay in touch with you, Jane, and you too, Zach. We'd love to come back in six months. Just a regular update. What's going on in your lives? What hurdles you're facing uh, in your life? And Zach, in particular, how your own government is getting in the way of you growing your own business. This is Lee Habib, Jane Johnson, Zach Model, our American Dreamer series. Brought to us, as always, by... Job Creators Network. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.